this is Nicole Tyson, and welcome to this edition of the JPAG Podcast. Today we'll be discussing the supplement in the JPAG September edition titled Intrauterine Devices for Adolescents. You'll be joining myself and Dr. Paula Hillard, the Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. Welcome, Dr. Hillard. I am so excited to talk about this month's um, JPAG topic, IUDs in adolescence. Definitely a topic near and dear to my heart. And near and dear to mine as well. So I am also excited. So let's first talk about the book we chose to highlight this month, um, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. Tell me your thoughts on that wonderful book. So first of all, thanks so much for suggesting it. I really, really enjoyed it. It was absolutely fascinating. I went to school in North Carolina, so not at the coast, but the the book is set in North Carolina at the coast. So I have at least a, a passing familiarity with the North Carolina coast and it's a beautiful part of the world. And, uh, it, I just was so fascinated by the, the botany and the, the biology that was mentioned and brought into the book and woven in so, so beautifully. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. I think I read it because a lot of people told me they just, they couldn't put it down. You just read it in a, in a day or two because it's just so beautiful. And you, you've got to know the story of this resilient young woman and, and it's just a beautiful book. I loved reading it. Me too. And I would heartily recommend it. Me too. I actually miss it. I wish there was a, a next one coming, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. <laughs> I'd like to know the next step in their life. <laughs> so that's a great one we recommend. Where the Crawdads Sing. If you haven't read it already, it's definitely a good one by Delia Owens. That's great. And your mention of a sequel, uh, we tried, a, I think, on the last podcast to give uh, an idea of what we might be thinking about as the next book. And, and you and I had talked about perhaps doing the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. It's called The, Test- the Testament or Testaments. Um, and uh, it really has been uh, well reviewed, and she just won the Booker Prize for this yeah, awesome. work. So, uh, so I look forward to reading it. I haven't started it yet, but I think that'll be a great next book. Yep, and I'm I'm going to download it after this podcast. So, thanks for the recommendation. Great. Um, and and before we connected, uh, I did read through the table of contents of our JPEG supplement just to sort of sort of depict the really impressive collection of articles here and resources. I think these are invaluable. And I know for the next maybe two months, I think it's still downloadable uh, at no cost if people don't have the JPEG through their organization, but they're just really great articles. So I think we talked about kind of going through each of the articles together and highlighting some of the key messages and then really spending some time to delve into your um, wonderful article addressing sort of practical counseling and uh, strategies for insertion. Sounds good. <clears throat> so the first article was just, um, that one is titled The Effective Contraception with Non-Contraceptive Benefits, which I think is such a wonderful and important topic to talk about all the benefits of IUDs beyond contraception, especially in the adolescence. Um, did you have some some key points in that article that you that you really liked? Well, I love it that it it summarizes the arguments in in favor of 
um, this particular LARC method and IUDs and, uh, you know, the things that we know, but it's nice to see summarized in a review, the safety and efficacy and high levels of satisfaction among adolescents. And then going on to address some of the myths, um, some of the reasons that clinicians and providers don't recommend uh, IUDs for teens. And so I, I love it. It's, it's overall a really good summary of all of, all of those things. And, and we certainly do use IUDs for girls with heavy menstrual bleeding or dysmenorrhea and for menstrual suppression as well. Yeah. And I think I definitely think one of the, the highlights of that article is I'm, I guess I'm always a fan of these tables, especially when they're done well and properly. And I just think that table one is so very helpful because it reviews all the intrauterine devices in the United States, talking about their context, the width, the dosage, even string color. I know people sometimes struggle when they're coming from other places, which and the patients don't know which IUD they have now. Just some of those things we sort of take for granted and forget. It's nice to have it in one consolidated place. It is nice. So good article. And it was a great article. Um, and then the next article was a really nicely written article as well. Uh, addressing barriers and solutions to improve adolescent uh, intrauterine device access. And I think one of the things I, def I definitely wanted to hear your highlighting and or your discussion about was this sort of reproductive justice-based counseling. Um, sort of describe what that means and maybe how you apply it in your actual clinical day-to-day -day life. So I think we're all starting to look at things through a reproductive justice uh, sort of lens, thinking about um, women and, and young women, adolescents, being able to make choices that are right for them. Choosing to have children later for most adolescents is what we think would be <laughs> healthiest for them and, and their babies. Um, but women, older women as well, being able to choose when, uh, whether, if, um, they want to have a pregnancy. So, so that's an important lens that we need to, to be aware of. And so we don't want to be coercive in our counseling of adolescents, but we do want adolescents to know that IUDs are a very safe, very effective and a method of contraception that lots and lots of teens are very satisfied with. So, so it's that kind of balance that we have overall. And, uh, you know, this article highlights a number of things, but one is the, the barriers in terms of payment. We're fortunate here in California to have uh, family pack funding for teens where they can confidentially get uh, all the options of contraception that they, they might choose. And, and so that is, is a big thing here in California. Not always true. The Affordable Care Act tried to address that, but we're certainly seeing moves to um, backtrack on that. So um, yeah, important yeah, access. Absolutely. I know it very much uh, makes me grateful to work in California when I work with colleagues in other parts of the country who have just different barriers to even accessing an IUD when they talk about same day access or same day insertion. It's just sometimes those luxuries aren't always available. So it is a challenge. Absolutely. And and I know we'll talk about it uh, with your article coming up as well, um, but I think the preponderance of sort of the myths and misinformation and the Google medicine information that patients come in with all these figments of fear based on IUDs. Um, so those are, I think those are some big barriers that we are constantly addressing 
um, academically and in our day-to-day life. So one of the, the unfortunate things is that many teens don't really have an adequate sexuality education program in their schools. And, and that's really where the information, getting accurate information begins. So with that better education. And then there are other things these authors um, outline in terms of an action plan, the, the need for more providers to be trained, and clearly the changes in the healthcare systems that need to happen. Um, overall, and and the clinic processes that uh, mitigate against things like same-day access. So all of those things need to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. It was a really nice, really brief summary, but well done. Um, And now on to a wonderful article by yours truly, you, not me, (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Hiller truly. Um, And it's just, this is a really great, uh, timely article talking about uh, practical tips, not only for insertion and pain relief, but counseling as well. So I think there were just a couple really great questions I was thinking as I read through this article that I know that our listeners would appreciate. Um, I think one of the really great things you brought to light is this information overload that definitely we feel when we talk to our teens, that they just sort of stare at you and you can see that the shutdown has begun. Um, so how, how does that impact your approach to counseling teens about LARPs? Well, as I say, I typically, I do start with talking about LARCs, and I do say, um, you know, I ask them what they know about the contraceptive methods, I ask them what they've they've heard, and I want to have an idea of where they are starting. And for some of them, it's remarkable how much information some of the teens that I see have, but others don't have any idea that an IUD is even an option, so we're starting from ground zero. Um, with those teens. And, and I do start by talking about LARCs and how effective they are, um, how safe they are, and how, um, how many teens are really happy to be using them. So, so that's really kind of my starting point with teens. I want them to know about all of the options, but I will focus on the options that um, are the most effective. Right. And I love that idea of asking them about what they already know or have heard, because some will come in having had their mom have an IUD or their sister. So they know that they're pretty happy with it or very happy with it. And others are, you know, well, the doctors told me I couldn't have an IUD because I haven't had a baby or something to that effect. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then um, I also I thought it would be nice if you could highlight that really nice mnemonic that you go through in terms of counseling and documenting the braided mnemonic? So this is, uh, this comes, the, the mnemonic for informed consent really comes from, um, from an older edition of contraceptive technology. And so the, the mnemonic is braided. And let's see here if I can remember. I, I am not a huge fan of mnemonics for all the medical <laughs> that I teach. Know that, that I struggle sometimes to remember what all of the, um, what all of the letters stand for. So right. let me. But we. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of times we do things like the, the benefits, risks, alternatives, yes. and side effects. So the braided is the benefits, risks, alternatives. And then you talk about really, which I think is important and part of this reproductive um, or justice is this inquiries so you can decide not to have it. You know, we're not going to hold it against you if you choose not to have a lark, even though we counseled you. And that's the I in the brain. So the benefits, I. risks, alternatives and inquiries about the, the option 
are the patients right? And when we're talking to teens, it's sort of the it's sort of the patient's responsibility to ask questions. But one of our jobs as we work with teens is to help them in interacting with the healthcare system to know what their responsibilities are. And that's one of the things that I enjoy doing. Uh, one of the things I say when I'm prescribing, for example, birth control pills and, and uh, talking to mom and daughter. So I may be prescribing the pill for a medical indication. Mom will always ask, tell me about side effects. And I will make a side comment. I will say, your mom is giving you a really good example of what you should do. If a doctor recommends a medication, you need to ask about possible side effects. And so we're doing a little bit of teaching in a roundabout way that says this is their responsibility to ask about possible side effects or, or um, about the options. So that's, that's the I, so that's their job. Um, decisions to, D is the decisions to withdraw from use so they can decide no, as you mentioned. And then they're due an explanation of the method. We talk about that and answer any and all questions that they may have. And then finally, uh, the final D would be documentation. And that's just what we do in the medical record, which we sometimes describe as our informed consent. But the informed consent is really the process that we go through to, um, to explain all of these things. So I'm glad, I'm glad you liked it. I liked it. It came from, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly which edition of contraceptive technology it came from, but one of the very, very early ones. Yeah, I, th I think it's a great, I think it's a great tool and something, you know, that I try to keep in mind when I go through these, um, sort of fire hosing all this information is really trying to empower the teens. Like you said, I think we're doing a lot more than just prescribing birth control. We're sort of introducing them to their future of healthcare. Um, so I like that idea of empowering them. It was the 1990 um, edition. So. Okay. <laughs> well, hey, it's come back around <laughs> for an anniversary, an almost 30 year. Huh? Um, and then I, I also really wanted to, to talk just a little bit on um, sort of the age appropriate responses to counseling. The, um, this very common adolescent thinking, well, that's not going to happen to me. I'm not going to have breakthrough bleeding. It's not going to fall out. Um, it's because that makes counseling even more challenging, I find, because you want them to anticipate things, but sometimes the brain of an adolescent doesn't do that very well. So the advice that was given to me by a nurse practitioner that I worked with years ago, and, and she was so good with teens, and she taught me so much was she taught me to say in terms of side effects and breakthrough bleeding in particular, not to say that it might happen because they may think it's not going to happen to me, just like they might think they can have unprotected sex and not get pregnant. Um, they may <laughs> think it, it's not going to happen. And, and so then to say, rather than you might have bleeding, you will have irregular and unpredictable bleeding, at least initially. It's likely to get better but it is so common that you should expect it. And then with a teen who may be still somewhat concrete, what are you going to do if it happens when you're in school? And maybe you might want to have a tampon or a pad with you every day if it might happen. So yeah, those are the things that's, that, that's good advice. that they can plan. <laughs> and then I think what you know, all patients want to know and certainly... I think our colleagues would appreciate sort of what, what is your expert opinion or counseling when you do talk about bleeding 
um, and the progesterone IUD versus the Paragard IUD in a teen? Like how, so how, what do you give them as an expectation? So what I tell them is they will have irregular, unpredictable, random, can happen any old time bleeding in the first one to three months. It will happen. And <laughs> just about when they're ready to come back to me and say, Dr. Hillard, take this darn thing out. I'm tired of it. Typically, it gets better. It becomes more of a regular pattern again. And then, um, but the bleeding typically becomes lighter and lighter over time. And the rates of amenorrhea at the end of a year, there was a recent review. And, and so rates that are cited in the patient package insert um, with the um, initial uh, hormonal IUD, um, the Mirena, um, were in the range of 20% cited in the patient package insert. There also are other reports that give higher rates of amenorrhea of about um, 60%. So I typically would say range of 20 to 60% no bleeding, but almost everybody has much, much less bleeding. So that's kind of my right. spiel. Right. And then how do you like contrast that with the implant? when they're sort of on the fence between which one. Yeah, I do say with the implant, um, don't expect not to have bleeding. The rates of amenorrhea, no bleeding are in the range of 20% with the implant. And so it's really quite a bit higher uh, with the IUD, with the hormonal IUD. Right. And so that sort of brings us to the apprehension for so many teens about getting the IUD is sort of the insertion process. So... Yeah, let's talk a little bit about how you counsel and, and then your sort of standard practice for IUD insertion in a, in a maybe 15-year-old. So absolutely. My general um, premise is that all other things being equal, which they may or may not be, but if they are <laughs> equal, then I would prefer that she would have had a gynecologic exam prior to having her IUD so that the IUD insertion wouldn't be her first pelvic exam. On the other hand, I have teens who would prefer to do it in that way and, and I will abide by their request if that is their request. But, but I feel that they can give a little better informed consent if they previously had a pelvic exam. Most teens are a little bit apprehensive before their first pelvic. And so if they've had one before, they're kind of over that apprehension related to the first exam. So ideally that would be the case. That would involve a second visit. And if that's not feasible, then I'm absolutely quite willing to go ahead and put the IUD in on that same first visit. Um, but that would be my, my first thought is that it would be better if she could have previously had an exam and, and get over that anxiety. Anxiety is a really big deal. And one of the things that I feel is pretty important in dealing with teens in general, but particularly during an IUD insertion, is the tone of voice that I use. And, and um, it's been described as vocal local or verbocaine, um, using exactly. really a soothing and calming tone of voice. I had a colleague who told me that she had spoken with a mom of one of my patients, and the mom described my voices as being, and the, the mood in the office during the IUD insertion as being very zen. And I thought, hmm, <laughs> that's a compliment. That's, nice. that's a compliment. 
So, that is so trying helpful. to to tell the teen what to expect, but in a very calm, calm manner. And I think that that helps. And then I'm a huge, huge fan of a paracervical block for teens and leprous women and any woman who is really anxious about the procedure. I think we now have evidence that it is helpful in terms of pain relief. I, I absolutely believe it in my own practice. And so for me, it's a routine part of IUD insertion for teens. I think a IUD insertion without a paracervical block, most teens would describe the pain as in the range of six to eight out of 10, some more, some less, but with the paracervical block, most of the teens I'm seeing say it's in the range of a three to four. Had a patient with a zero a couple weeks ago, and I had another one who said it was a half. So I, I think it really does make, make a difference. So that, that plug I put in for paracervical. And, and what, is, what is your paracervical block? What, describe what you use and how you do it. So I do it um, using a total of 20 mLs rather than 10, which is well within the safe amount that is allowed. I um, will use what's called the cough technique. So I have my 22-gauge spinal needle that I, first of all, will inject about a cc on the anterior lip of the cervix for the tenaculum. And I just hold the needle still and count to three and ask them to cough. So a single cough and with that increased um, intra-abdominal pressure, they will impale themselves on the needle and not really feel it in the same way as a stick. So I do that for the one ml on the anterior lip of the cervix at 12 o'clock. I do it when I put the tenaculum on. I do it when I inject the 10 mls at four o'clock and 10 mls at, at eight o'clock. Um, and they generally don't feel it like the stick. I also keep the needle out of their view, the big syringe and the big needle out of their <laughs> Smart, view. Yeah, <laughs> the nurse covers it with a, <laughs> with a, uh, a paper drape uh, so that they, they can't see it. So uh, they, what, they, what they can't see may go over a little bit easier. So right. that's, that's my paracervical. And then what do you use? So using 1% use... lidocaine without epi without epi. So okay. Pretty quick onset. And, and you did comment in your article that you do prescribe um, some NSAID prior to the procedure for the after procedure cramp. Right. So the evidence is it doesn't help much with the actual uh, pain of the procedure, but it does help afterwards if they've taken it prophylactically. So if they don't have contraindications to NSAIDs, I do recommend NSAIDs. And the other thing, when they when I'm telling them prior to the insertion what I'm going to do, I tell them that I do these things for pain relief, and I think that's helpful, too. They're anticipating that we're doing something to make it easier for them. Right, right. So do you just use like a ibuprofen 600 or something like that? Do you have a favorite go-to? Oh, my favorite NSAID is naproxen just because it has a longer half-life lasting eight to 12 hours. But if they have ibuprofen at home, that's that's perfectly fine. It lasts for four to six, uh, but they get a little right. longer uh, with duration the with the naproxen. Yeah. Okay, good. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Those are really good recommendations. And then um, I, you also comment, because I think a lot of people feel like maybe doing the IUD procedure quicker um, is the best modality, but adding a paracervical block, as you comment, and they show in studies, really doesn't seem to prolong the whole uh, the procedure itself either. So it still remains quick. It is still quick. And you just move right on through things expeditiously, but not 
you're not looking hurried. <laughs> you're tr- you're right, trying right. to just move through it um, in a in a smooth fashion. Right. I mean, I think it's all of us who take care of adolescents, especially doing procedures, sometimes recognize that just what we do in our behavior is therapeutic yep. or not therapeutic. <laughs> exactly. On... <laughs> exactly. So I, I think that's helpful. And then I just, the two other comments I had were that there are some great studies now demonstrating that you really do see a benefit with the 20 mLs of paracervical block over a lower volume. So I think that's used in family planning clinics for tabs and uh, DNCs and, you know, office procedures as well as using a 20 cc paracervical. Um, and then I like the cough trick when we're taking out the IUD too. Yes. Because yes. they don't even feel that when you grab the string and there you go. Yep. It's out. So great. All right. Well, good. Well, do you have any other important things I might've left out about your great article, just sort of the practical management for these girls with who want IUDs? Well, thank you for giving me that opportunity. I want to be sure we have enough time to talk about all of the articles in the supplement because they're all fabulous. So thank you. They are. They are. Okay. So uh, the fourth article is really just talking. uh, It's one of, I love this topic too, is managing uh, menstrual suppression and really special adolescent populations. Um, They touch on so many important populations that we see in our specialty, um, oncology patients, girls with developmental and physical disabilities, transgender and gender non-binary patients, and of course, epilepsy. I think that's one of the really cool things about pediatric and adolescent gynecology is we have so much crossover um, with these other different fields and sort of optimizing both contraception and menstrual suppression. Absolutely. So it's a nice summary of, of those populations and the benefits. Yeah. And, and I think one of the really nice uh, tables, again, Nicole and her tables, um, is table one really talks and outlines the data sort of showing these amenorrhea rates, as you spoke about earlier, with all the contraceptive methods. And I think those are really helpful for counseling um, our patients and parents, too. Um, and I think I, one of the questions I had about this article, which they talk on a little bit, but I wanted to bring back to you is, um, what, are, what are your thoughts on using the next planon implant in these populations? Because I, I don't think, I think that's sort of an area we need to explore a little bit because it comes up a lot now as people learn more and more about next planon. It does. Um, again, it depends a bit on what the objectives are. Um, I think that, that um, with next planon, there is suppression of ovulation. And so that may be an objective, depending on what the signs and symptoms are. It's, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's not likely to give the same rates of amenorrhea as the IUD or decrease in amount of flow. So it just really, you have to talk with the individuals themselves or in girls with significant developmental delay with their family and care t- caregivers as well. So, so it's, it, we just need to, to have that dialogue and conversation. Right. And I do remember listening to one of your talks that you gave a long time ago where you were talking about menstrual suppression and sort of optimizing situations. And you did say, which I think is important, that these aren't necessarily the methods they're going to use for the rest of their lives. They have a lot of years to use a lot of methods. And so um, it's just something to think about in our counseling, because I do think patients feel like this is it. Once we pick it, this is the method. Yeah. And we know that's not always We true. know that most women, change, <laughs> their needs change over time. Right. And if that right. is the case, then their, their contraceptive needs certainly right. may change. Although LARCs now really have shown such long, um, consistent use, right? I mean, patients retain them much longer than 
the short acting methods. Absolutely. Really Ongoing use, successful yeah. use. So the uh, second to last article here is uh, the post-abortion and postpartum entry during device provision for adolescents and young adults. I'm really talking about expanding access to these modalities, um, which may really decrease our unintended rapid and repeat pregnancy rate we see in high-risk populations like adolescents. Absolutely. So that's, that's the goal. And it's such an opportunity. Um, you have a patient who is pretty motivated, uh, either immediately post-placental delivery or post-abortion uh, to have an IUD and just a, a wonderful opportunity. We need to, to look and be aware of the expulsion rates, which uh, postpartum may be higher, but we also need to balance and, and know that we're balancing that with the fact that many women don't come back for postpartum visit for an IUD insertion. We may not see them. So we've lost the opportunity if they don't come back to our offices. So uh, just being aware that it's an option that you can counsel patients about. Right, that's a great way to put it. And, and not only do they not come back, but we have now some new data showing that even when they do come back to their postpartum visit, many of them don't get the IUD at that time for various right. reasons. So it is, it's like a double miss. So yeah, that was a really nice and, and important article. I liked it a lot too. And last but not least, a really nice sort of summary, and I learned a lot from this international perspectives about IUDs in adolescence, um, really sort of a, a historical depiction of, of the evolution of IUDs and then sort of the um, array of use across different countries and how different it is. Um, I think one of the most striking differences I read was that IUDs are used 41% of the time in China and 2% of the time in India in such a big difference and 9.5 in the United States. So it's quite a crossover of variety. I really love this article too. And just for the reasons you absolutely mentioned to give us a international perspective and to recognize that that there are variations and it's not variations in the biology. Teens in India don't have right. different biology <laughs> from those in China. Um, it's just um, that there are cultural differences. There are differences in the, the training for clinicians and providers. There are differences in the myths that are prevalent in different places. And, and so important to understand that there are there certainly is local variation, and uh, so I important to to be aware. Um, I also love always um, reading the studies from um, the Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, with their national registries, uh, giving us some pretty amazing data. So that's that I always enjoy reading too. Yeah, it's very informative. Well, I have a feeling you and I could talk about these articles for about two we hours. We could. <laughs> Easily. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's, it's, a, it's a wonderful supplement. So well done putting that together. I, I think it's very helpful. Well, this is, um, let me just give a tribute to our guest editor, uh, Eduardo Laratore, because he is the guest editor. He invited the, um, the authors, um, some really um, excellent authors. I just think I, I'm very, very proud that we have this supplement. I would encourage everybody to, to take a look at it and use it as a reference. Absolutely. Well, and thank you, Dr. Hiller, for taking the time to share your expertise and thoughts. We appreciate it. My pleasure. See you next right, time. Well, everyone. Yeah, thanks for joining us.